We'll be in Luke 23 this morning. I asked Neil to read a related passage, so I'll start with the text here that we're going to focus in on this morning. Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. It says, It was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. So we mentioned uh, three weeks ago or so that, that Luke 23, 26 through 49, like that, that section is really one section, but that it was going to take us a, a few weeks to get through. And so as we open up our study of this passage this morning, I don't want us to lose sight of the larger picture of what's going on in this whole section. I think if we could sum it up, I think if we could, we could just boil it down to keep the larger picture in mind, it would be that Jesus is prophet and priest and king. So, like the church has been given two offices, right? Elder, elders and deacons, right? Those are specific offices that God has given to the church. Well, in the Old Testament, there were three primary offices, prophets, priests, and kings. And prophets were tasked with speaking God's word, relaying God's message to God's people. Priests were to serve as mediators between God and men, as those who were representative of the people and could offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. And kings were, were meant to be as sons who would represent the Father. They were to represent God's rule and reign on earth. And so we've seen as we've walked through this text that Jesus is the prophet who looked at the daughters of Jerusalem and warned them of impending judgment. And we said that judgment points forward to a greater world, worldwide judgment. We've seen that Jesus is king as he was ironically mocked as the king of the Jews and a placard was placed above his head that read, this is the king of the Jews. Yet he was truly recognized as king by a repentant criminal who asked him, Lord, remember me, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And this morning we see that Jesus is our great high priest. We saw it a couple weeks ago as he interceded on behalf and prayed for those who were putting him to death. And we see it again today in his work. That those who are alienated from God are brought near by the blood of Christ that he offered himself as a sacrifice, becoming the great high priest and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So there's three simple points this morning as we sort of see this idea of Jesus' work. We see first that creation speaks, secondly, Jesus speaks, and then third, the centurion speaks. All right, three simple points. We'll tease them out over time. Creation speaks, Jesus speaks, and then the centurion speaks. Let's look at creation here. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that the crucifixion began about 9 a.m. 
And so Luke's, Luke's mention here in verse 44 that it was about the sixth hour, that would be a, a, about noon, means that Jesus has now been on the cross for three hours. And, and Luke records to us that creation is testifying to the nature of what is happening as Jesus is hanging on that cross. It says, darkness has covered the whole land. The sun's light has failed there in verse 45. Now again, 9 a.m., noon, it's not supposed to be dark, right? This is clearly God's providential involvement in creation. And, and, and I would suggest, and I think we'll see this from the text, that this is signaling that this is a moment of God's wrath being poured out, right? Throughout the Bible, darkness is pictured as or we might say it the other way, judgment is oftentimes pictured as darkness, right? One of the plagues that befell Egypt as judgment on them was darkness. The prophets spoke of this, this coming day of the Lord, which is a time of judgment in which darkness will cover the whole earth, right? As a sort of representative text, Amos 8, 9 says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Again, that's the day of the Lord. This is a time of, of judgment and wrath being poured out. Hell, in, in the Gospels, we've seen it in the Gospel of Luke, it's referred to as outer darkness. So over and over and over again, darkness is indicative of God's judgment. And I think that's what's being signaled here. And this helps us understand then the nature of the cross. That God the Son is bearing the full weight and the full force of God's wrath against sin. This isn't, this isn't the absence of God, but the presence of His wrath. And creation is testifying through God's providential means that this is what is going on. This is the cup. Right? This is the cup that Jesus, in His humanity, asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, Lord, if, if, if there's any way, spare me from this cup. What's the cup? The cup, we said, is the wrath of God being poured out, and Jesus is going to bear that wrath. And so now we have on that cross, this is what is happening. But Jesus submitted Himself there in the Garden, to the will of the Father, and therefore we find Him in our text enduring the cross. He was made sin for us. Right? He was wounded for our transgressions. We saw in Galatians 3 last week, He became a curse for us. He became for us a propitiation, which is, which is a, a big theological word that just means wrath-bearing sacrifice. He became the sacrifice that bore our wrath. See, I think it's, we talked a couple weeks ago about the physical nature of the crucifixion and how terrible that would be, but I think it's, it's impossible for us to understand the magnitude of what Jesus endured on the cross. Feeling the forsakenness of the Father. The spiritual suffering, I would suggest, goes far beyond the physical suffering. Just think about your own life, your own personal sin, how, how sin weighs you down. Think about the guilt of your own sin. Think about how David said, my sin, it's ever before me. He says, I'm like a man who's, in, in Psalm 32, 
like a man who's walking through the desert and the hand of the Lord is just heavy upon me. My strength is waning. My body is failing. It's dried up, he says, like the heat of summer. Think about how sin tears down and it destroys. Think about how it causes pain and regret. And now consider that Jesus is bearing the weight of sin for all those who come to Him in faith. What a weight. What a weight and a punishment and a penalty that only the God-man could endure. We've been, we've been highlighting this throughout the Gospel, but I think it bears repeating that you, if you are trusting in that, right? if you are trusting in the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ, how ridiculous for us to think that He would ever abandon us. This is what Christ endured for us. Think about how offensive it is to look at the cross and say, yeah, but that's not enough for me. I'm some special class of sinner that cannot be cleansed by the work of Christ. Again, we've said this over and over, but we're not minimizing your sin. We're not minimizing my sin. We're magnifying the righteousness and the perfect work of Jesus. His righteousness supersedes our sin. And He demonstrates there on that cross that He indeed loves those who were once His enemy. Right? It's, a, it's a terrible charge against God to say that He could never keep me, that He could never love me, that He could never accept me. Right? Because we're, we're, we think we're being humble, right? We think we're diminishing ourselves when in reality we're looking at the cross and saying it's not enough. His great love for you is confirmed there at the cross. We can stop looking at how our day goes, stop looking at how healthy we are. We can stop looking back on our life and saying, well, you know, my dreams didn't become a reality. We can look to the cross and be assured of God's love for us. God has demonstrated His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So on the, in the midst of this darkness, Jesus is enduring the full force of God's wrath. There's none left. There's none left for those who come to faith. The irony is from the outside, it looks as if darkness has won. Right? It looks as if darkness has won. Jesus told His betrayers when He was arrested, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus came as light. John talks about it, but Luke talks about it as well, that Jesus came as light, and here He's enveloped by darkness. But the beauty of the Gospel is that God is active in the darkness, accomplishing our salvation. He was bringing about the eternal plan of redemption. Jesus is truly the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. That means that it was God's plan from the beginning to accomplish salvation through this dark day of judgment that befell Christ. The promise of the, in the garden after the fall was that the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent. The serpent will strike his heel, but he will have his head crushed. And here in the darkness, the snake is biting the heel, and Jesus is crushing his head. Right, The victory that Jesus is winning by actually taking upon Himself the wrath of God. He bore our sins in His body, Peter says. The victory that Jesus is winning here on the cross 
I think it's signified by, by another event that has to do with created things. Now, I'm not suggesting that creation is acting sort of on its own. God is acting through creation to testify to what's happening here. One was the darkness. The second is this, this curtain of the temple being torn in two, right? From top to bottom. Now, some of you have been around for a few years, and you may remember the time I was teaching at Vacation Bible School, right? And we had these posters back here. There was like two big posters, and we had to tape them up. And I'm not lying. I was preaching through Mark's gospel to give the kids a sense of, of the text. And I'm not lying. The moment I said the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, the posters go from top to bottom. It was wild. Um, this isn't the point I was making. One of the kids, Lisa asked one of the kids, like, what did you learn at VBS? I learned that God listens to Pastor Kyle. <laughs> That's not what I said. That's what was, was heard. It was so funny, though, because I didn't even have to make the point. You know, I didn't have to say, like, oh, guys, like the... It, it was so evident to them. Here's, here's the point I want to make this morning. The temple curtains, they weren't held up by scotch tape on a wood wall. All right, this was, this was actually a, a double curtain. Some historical records, this isn't Bible, but some historical curtains are like, uh, or sources say they're like four-inch thick curtains. Right, the temple curtain would have been hanging 60 feet high. It's not hanging there by scotch tape. Oops, accidentally ripped from top to bottom. This is clearly a sign. The darkness, we said, is, is, is sort of a cosmic sign of the wrath of God and the torn veil, we might say, is, is like a religious sign that access to God is now available through Jesus Christ. Now, I found, I was studying this week, and I found uh, the greatest commentary in the world on these verses. It's so good that the church will, if you don't have access to this, the church will give you a copy of it. Um, the author's anonymous, but I wrote the name of it here. It's called The Book of Hebrews. So if you need a copy of the Bible, you can take that for yourself. But let's flip over quickly to Hebrews chapter 9. It really is the greatest commentary on what is going on with these torn curtains. We're going to read a little bit and talk a little bit, so just bear with me. We're going to, you just need to know, we can't say everything there is to say, right? When we flip to a text like this, we're going to read a decent amount of Scripture this morning, and we can't say everything, but I want to point out a few things. Hebrews chapter 9 says this. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence... It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail." Now, Hebrews chapter 9 is describing the, the tabernacle, right? It mentions a tent there. But, but the temple would eventually become the, the permanent structure, right? Where, where this same structure, the same layout would, 
occur, right? You've got this, you've got this holy place, but, but beyond that, behind a second curtain, you've got the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant there. And God's presence was symbolically or, or it was manifested there. And so um, notice the mention of, of the curtains, right? The, the holy place is behind one curtain, and then behind the second curtain is, is the most holy place. Now let's, let's keep reading, verses 6 through 10. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual du- duties. So the priests can go in there regularly. But in the, to the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So the priest can, can go regularly behind that first curtain, right? The holy place, there's, there's like daily offerings that, that, that happen there. But, but in the most holy place, only the high priest can go. And even then the text says just, just once a year, and before he goes back there, he has to cleanse himself by offering uh, a, a sacrifice or else he cannot go into the most holy place. This would happen on the Day of Atonement. The sacrifice would occur. And in the Old Covenant, that would, that would like stay God's wrath for another year. And then it would happen again the next year, and the next year, and the next year. Right? But verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience to, pur- to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Now, so as Jesus is dying, outer darkness, the, the curtain is torn in two. The, the author of Hebrews sort of takes up that imagery and he sort of applies it metaphorically, right? Because in our text, Jesus is on the cross. He's not in the temple. But metaphorically, he entered the holy place and offered himself as the sacrifice, the unblemished, unspotted, perfect, eternal sacrifice for sin, thus securing, the the author of Hebrews says, eternal redemption, never in need of another sacrifice. He saves eternally. Those who come to him in faith. That's what Neil read this morning. He's able to save to the uttermost. Now notice in verse 9, he said that as long as those curtains are up, it signified that not everybody can go into the most holy place. 
As long as the curtain stands, access to God is limited. Only the high priest could go in there. Only the high priest could enter his presence, and even then, once per year. So in our text, when that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, and I would suggest it's the second curtain, the curtain that kind of blocks the most holy place, it's a symbolic act that the work of Christ is so significant that it's not the high priest that has access to God alone. It's that everyone who turns to Christ in faith has equal access to God, equal access to Him. We, we can move from being at enmity with God because of our sin to being welcomed, accepted, and loved. Not because of our own efforts or goodness, but because the curtain has been torn in light of the work of Christ. We don't have to then enter some, some temple. We don't have to make a, a pilgrimage. Jesus Christ is the way. Right? In fact, flip over to chapter 10. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, how? By the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. Right, The veil has been torn. We have equal access to God through Christ. The God who dwells in inapproachable light, we can approach Him confidently and boldly. And notice in verse 20, He again sort of takes up the picture. What's the, what's the real curtain that need to be torn? It's the flesh of Christ. How do you come to God? You come to Him through the curtain. What's the curtain? Well, the author of Hebrews says, it's the torn body of Jesus. You must enter through Him if you would be reconciled to God. Jesus said it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. What a difference the veil makes. The torn veil. That we have access to God. So we should ask them, like, okay, what, what difference does this make? Right? And, and I'm, again, I'm thankful for Hebrews as our commentary because if I said the things I'm about to say without, like, pointing to them in the text, right? You'd say, man, Kyle's just kind of preaching what he wants to preach right now. But look at what Hebrews goes on to say. What are we supposed to do in light of the flesh of Christ has been torn and we can come to God through that? Look at this, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's what the author of Hebrews says. The, the, the veil has been torn. You have access to God. You can now be welcomed, accepted, loved in Christ. What should we do? Well, he says we should draw near to God 
Right? We, we mentioned earlier the, the glory of God, the, 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 the visible representation of His presence was manifest in the most holy place, and that curtain has been torn, and we're invited to draw near to Him. Now again, this isn't a physical movement, as if we need to go somewhere to draw near to Him. That's the point. The temple's been, the, the curtain's been ripped, and the temple's been destroyed. We worship Him now in spirit and in truth. So we draw near to Him. And again, notice He's talking to believers here. We draw near to Him by setting our hearts toward Him. Through praying and through communing and through pleading with Him. And through glorying in His work. And in the fact that He indwells us through His Spirit. We glory in the fact that we've been welcomed by God. We can be assured of God's work. And we ought to actually, you know, we sort of picked at this earlier a little bit, but we ought to confront those doubts that keep you from turning to Him and drawing near to Him. Sometimes when we sin, we think to ourselves, I could never, I could never go to Him. And we think we sort of need to rest under the weight of our guilt for a season so that I can sufficiently punish myself for failing to keep God's law. Draw near to God. He delights when we draw near to Him. As we said earlier, it's, it's prideful to assume that we should keep God at an arm's length, that my sin is too much, that the curtain is still up for me and not others. So we should draw near to God. He also says, hold fast. In other words, you've been given this great hope in Christ. Now he's already, now keep, keep holding on. Hold fast to that hope. Return regularly to the fountain of the good news of the gospel. Do not waver in your commitment to Christ. Put to death the deeds of the body that would seek to lead you astray. Draw near to God. Hold fast to our hope. And then he says, stir one another up. Stir one another up. The reality is, you and I, we don't hold fast to Christ alone. We don't. And we can't. If you're wondering, like, how do you get from hold fast to stir one another up to love and good works? Those are more related than we want to admit. We don't do the work of holding fast alone. We can't. Instead, we must consider, he says, consider, think about, ponder how to stir one another up to love and good works. So I was confronted with this question, and I had to wrestle with it, so I'm going I'm to give it to you. When was the last time you contemplated ways in which you could encourage someone else to love God, obey God, and serve others? When was the last time you stopped and had a second to think about ways to do this? That's the command. Consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Maybe it's Maybe we can do that even today, right? By pushing the conversation beyond who's going to win the Super Bowl next week, right? I'm probably the only one that wants to talk about that, but and I'm not saying you can't talk about it. 
Right? I'm not saying you can't talk about how crazy it is that it's raining in February. Right? We can talk about those things. But what I'm saying, maybe to, to, to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, maybe the way we can do that is to take a risk and ask somebody, how are you, how are you really doing? How's your walk with Christ? How can I pray for you? Or another way that came to my mind, how can we stir one another to love and good works? You know, you can, you can uh, serve someone together. Right? Go, go visit one of our widow ladies or one of our single adults and grab someone and say, hey, I'm going to see, I'm going to see Bunny this week. Come with me. Right? You're considering, you're thinking, okay, not only am I going to try to do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to consider how to stir someone else up to love and good works. He also says, then, not neglecting to meet together. Now, in the context of Hebrews, it was probably persecution and fear of discrimination that would keep someone from, from coming. You know, I've seen those memes, and, and, and today's weather is different, so I'm not making fun, but I've seen that meme that's like, I can do all things through Christ, and they're like, it's raining and you miss church, all right? So, and again, I'm not making fun, uh, but in, in Hebrews, it was probably discrimination, right? Fear of discrimination and persecution that would lead someone to stop meeting together. I'm also not talking about like missing one Sunday here and there either. In our context, in our culture, it's probably busyness or apathy that might keep us away. And, and in Hebrews, this is not a light thing. This is not a light thing. Right? They, the, the people who were neglecting to meet together out of fear of persecution or discrimination, they were assuming that they were stronger than they were. They were assuming that I can hold fast to Christ and I don't need brothers and sisters in Christ around me to help me do that. I don't need the encouragement of the church. I don't need the preaching of the Word of God. I don't need the fellowship that's available in Christ. Now we would say this, so I'm not confusing anybody. Those, we would say this, those who fully and finally abandon the faith and never return, we would say they were never truly Converted, right? We would say God perseveres the faith of His own. He, he preserves His people to the very end. But we would then say this, God uses means to accomplish His will. Right? And one of the things He uses to, to persevere and to preserve His people is gathering together and encouraging one another and pushing one another and considering how to stir one another, one another up to love and good works. So here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying somebody that's not in church right now can't be, be born again. I'm saying they're putting themselves in a really dangerous and a scary position when they refuse to meet together. And we pray that they would, they would commit themselves to, to the church so that they might receive the, the edification and the building up that happens inside a local church. And this is why we want our meetings then to be characterized by Christ. Because Hebrews says, you need to hold fast, you need to draw near to God, you need to stir one another up to love and good works. And so, therefore, we think our gathering needs to be about Christ. Right? We want our, we want our mornings to be characterized by the gospel and by the glory of God. 
right? I'm, I'm not trying to be snarky, but there's a reason, like words matter, all right? So there's a reason we don't refer to church as the worship experience, okay? Because we are not out to try to create an experience for you. We don't view that as like our, our God-intended goal is not to create an experience. When we sing, we're not trying to create something in you. We are actually encouraging and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What are we doing? We're taking the truths of the gospel, the truths of the Bible, and we're singing them. And, and we can hear each other. We're singing back and forth to one another. And we're mutually building one another up in the faith. It's another reason we, we don't, our sermons aren't seven tips to handling your money better or five strategies for a better marriage. We want to talk about money. We want to know. We want the wisdom to be practical about money. We, want, we counsel all the time, right? If, you, if your marriage is struggling, I think we can, we can help you practically. But it's not divorced from Christ. Right? There's no tips or tricks that are ultimately going to help you. So everything we do, right? everything we do, including our fellowship, singing, preaching, small group, everything we do, we do with the reality of the gospel motivating us and that centers us. And that's what unites us. So let me, let me encourage you this morning to take advantage of what we do when we gather. Again, I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, it's minus 25 and the ice is, you, you neglected the meeting. You know, you'll find, I think, that we, we are incredibly gracious. with We try to be. But let me encourage you to take advantage of what we do when we gather. We sing, we listen, we stick around. There's Bible hour, there's potluck. And again, this, well, I'm not trying to make this a legalistic. Remember years ago when Jeff was preaching and he just said, you know, if you're not in the habit of potluck, maybe just once a month, you know, just come, be with us. And I thought that was a good, like, we're not making it some kind of legalistic standard, but we think it's a good thing because we are to be encouraging one another. And we simply cannot do that if we're not together. All right, that's point number one. <laughs> let, me, let me wrap up point one this way. The other two are shorter, but... You've got the... Man. You've got the darkness, and you've got the, the torn curtain. And I think herein lies the beauty of the gospel. The darkness symbolizing God's judgment. And the torn curtain symbolizing what Jesus is doing there, granting us access to God, bearing our judgment so that we might approach God as our loving Father. All right, so creation speaks. The darkness, the torn curtain, obviously through God's providential intervention. Jesus dies as our substitute. Secondly, we see Jesus speaking there in verse 46. You can get back to Luke 23. The darkness presumably has lifted at this point, and Jesus cries out from the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. 
So these, these words, outside of the address of Father, that's kind of Jesus adds Father because he's addressing his Father. But, but the rest of that is a quote from Psalm 31.5. And Psalm 31 was written by uh, King David. In that psalm, David is, is crying out as one who is suffering at the hands of evildoers. And, and David, in, in one sense, not the same sense that Jesus is righteous, but he, he's righteous in the sense that he trusts in the Lord despite his adversaries who are out to harm him. And so when Jesus takes the words of Psalm 31 and repeats them, he's applying them to himself. And I would say, based on everything we've studied about Jesus, he, he is the ultimate example then of the righteous sufferer. He's the, he's the clear example of the one who suffers righteously. David was like a foreshadow. That's what Hebrews would say. Like David was a foreshadow of what the king would come and do. And now Jesus comes as the righteous one who's going to fulfill the promises that were given to David. And these promises, we've seen, include an eternal throne. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's demonstrating that he's entrusting himself to the Father in, in the midst of evildoers assailing him, right? In the midst of the persecution and the cross. It's, it is the hour of darkness, the power of darkness in their hour in one sense. He's being assailed by his enemies. The question then is, so Jesus is expressing his great trust in the Father in the midst of this. What is he trusting the Father to do? Into your hands I commit my spirit. I think what he's expressing is a confident expectation in the face of death that the Father will vindicate him and deliver him. Ultimately, Jesus is, is looking forward to that which he's already predicted. Right? He's already predicted multiple times that he will be resurrected from the grave. And that will be the thing that completely vindicates Jesus. And he will, he will then ascend to the right hand of the Father and be exalted above all. That's why then, as he, as he expresses trust of what's coming, the Father will, will, will deliver me. He will vindicate me. This is why, again, Hebrews chapter 12 can speak of Jesus enduring the cross for the joy that was set before Him. Well, what joy? What was Jesus looking to? What is He trusting the Father to do, in other words? Well, Jesus understands that the suffering and the humiliation that he's enduring will be the, the road to his exaltation, to being seated at the right hand of the Father and to the glory of the gospel going to the nations and his name being lifted high in the world as many partake of the forgiveness that's available in his name. So we look to Jesus then as the one who has paved the way. As Jesus endured the cross and despised the shame, right? as those who, who profess to follow Christ, we too endure suffering. As we look forward, Jesus as endured the cross as the joy that was set before Him, we too look forward to our great reward. I think a, a major part of maturing in Christ, growing in Christ, is learning to see past like what's right here, the immediate. 
the thing that is present. Part of growing in Christ is, is through the Word, as the Spirit changes our hearts, it's setting our confident expectation on the future. It is discerning that even those, as Jesus endures the mocking voices, as we might too, we, we learn that these voices will one day be silenced. And that we too will be vindicated in Christ. It is entrusting ourselves to God and being reminded of His faithfulness. Right, 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. So while trusting in, in the Father, Jesus breathed His last breath and died. Again, the Son of God slain, and He dies expressing His deep, enduring trust in the Father. And I would say this, because Jesus died in hope, because He died in hope, like real hope, like confident expectation that actually came true, because Jesus died in hope, we can die in hope too. We can die in hope too. We might say it this way, because of His death, we don't have to fear death. Because of His death, we don't have to fear death. He is the pioneer of our faith. He has gone on before us. And we can follow Him there. He will lead us triumphantly through the gates of death and into glory. I think this text, I think this expression of Jesus' hope and right before He dies is just packed with hope for those who are afraid of death. Here's your homework if you're afraid of death. Hang out with Dan for one hour. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> But this text is just packed with hope. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid to die? Do you wonder what will become of you? Now, no one enjoys the process of death, right? My joke about Dan is because Dan and I were going back and forth about death one day, and he's like, whatever, takes me where I want to go. And I'm like, Dan, still death, and it, it, so it, uh, we realized after several minutes of going back and forth that Dan's talking about the result of death. I'm talking about the process of death. Right? The process of death stinks. It's a terrible reality. It's the result of the fall. And it's the result of being in a sin-cursed world with these sin-cursed body. And we will die. Nobody gets excited about that. Right? But the result... The result of that is something that we can get excited about. The hope that we have when we face that last enemy and we might have running through our minds on our deathbed, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Christ Jesus. I remember getting home one night and it was, it was just one of those nights that was just super dark, you know, and our house was dark, nobody was home. And one of my kids who was younger kind of comes over and he grabs my hand and he says, can I walk with you? And we're going like 20 feet, you know, and I'm like, yeah, you can walk with me. And maybe I'm like searching for like a compliment here or something. But I said, you know, why do you want, 
why do you want to walk in with me? And he said, because it's dark and I trust you. Death is like that. It's dark. It's dark. But we have a faithful Savior there in the midst of it that has gone on before us that we can trust. And He's defeated it through His resurrection. And He walks with us. He's promised to never leave us or forsake us. And He holds our hand as this body wastes away and we enter into His glorious presence. This is what Jesus is expressing. This great trust in the Father that he will be vindicated, that he will be resurrected, that he will be exalted, and his gospel will go to the nations. And you see it, you see it in this centurion, this Roman centurion, who professes Jesus' righteousness. Creation speaks, we said, Jesus speaks, and then lastly, we see the centurion speaks there in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, You could say he glorified God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. Now, lots of people had witnessed the death of Christ. It was, was, we we said, the crucifixions are, are public events. The centurion on duty that day overseeing Jesus' crucifixion had likely seen hundreds, if not thousands, of these public crucifixions. But this one was different. This one was different, and he recognized it. Maybe it was the amount of mockery and ridicule that is thrown at Jesus. Perhaps that superseded anything he'd seen before. Maybe it was the darkness over the face of the earth, and he's, the, the, the Spirit of God is helping him to see the truth behind what is going on there. It's judgment. Maybe it was seeing Jesus pray for those who are putting him to death. Maybe it was the way Jesus acknowledged criminals on his left and right. Maybe it was the way he spoke of an eternal kingdom kingdom or expressed his unwavering hope in God. Whatever it was, maybe a combination of all those things, the satyrian looks and says, certainly this man was innocent. Now this is the seventh confession in Luke chapter 23 of the, the innocence of Jesus. Right? It could be it could be translated, surely this man is just. Surely this man is righteous. In fact, it's probably, I think, I think it's a good translation. In, in the book of Acts, uh, the righteous one becomes a title on the apostles' lips as they refer to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, the apostle would say one thing he is, he's the righteous one, the just one. So this is the seventh time that that's been affirmed in this gospel, and it speaks to his complete and utter perfection. And it's the reason that he's able to lay down his life as the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. You know, sometimes we throw around terms like that loosely. He's innocent, or he's perfect. You know, did you read my email? Yeah, it was perfect. Probably wasn't. Right? We talk about a perfect season for a football team. Used to be 16 and 0, right? Now 17 and 0. They might be perfect in terms of their record, right? They, they might be perfect on a macro level. They haven't lost a game, but you don't have to zoom in too far to see that they're not perfect at all. Their quarterback, who's probably the best in the league, threw it into the ground probably 30% of the time. 
They committed penalties. They gave up touchdowns against them. They threw interceptions. They fumbled the ball. They're actually far from perfect. And we might consider our own lives that way. Some records on a macro level might look better than others. But all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Upon closer inspection, and oh, if you could just see our hearts, we're so far, so far. The Bible can go so far as even saying that even our good works, even those things that we look at and say, wow, that's, those are as filthy rags. But Jesus' life is, in the truest sense of the word, completely perfect, just, righteous, and innocent. Now Mark's gospel says that the centurion looked on and said, surely this man is the Son of God. And which is it? Well, he probably said both. Or Mark and Luke are just kind of summarizing what he meant. The reality is that to understand that Jesus is the Son of God is to understand His righteousness and to understand that He is completely and utterly righteous is to understand that He is the Son of God. These go hand in hand. Since He is the Son of God, He is completely innocent. And since He is completely innocent, we can trust that He is the Son of God. And as Neil read earlier, it was fitting that Jesus would be the high priest who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is the Son who offered Himself up and has no need. There's no need for Him to do anything more. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He drank the cup of wrath down to the dregs. It is finished. He has paid it all. He's the prophet. He's the priest. And He's the king. He's the righteous one who was slain. As we sing together, my hope is that we would draw near to God, encouraging one another with our voices, reminding ourselves that there is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Let's pray. Lord God, we just rejoice in Christ. Don't allow us to take it lightly. Break our hearts over our sin so that we might rest even more fully in His grace and His work. May You be glorified in us. In Jesus' name, amen.